Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. So, hey, we want to talk a little bit about active shooter today, even though we're not having them right now because the entire country's been shut down. It won't be long before this crisis comes back to our country and back to law enforcement. We're sitting here with uh, John, Travis, and Nick. And we wanted to have a conversation about active shooter, what an active shooter is, and the misdiagnosis of what an active shooter is. As we travel up and down the state, and we talk to a lot of team leaders, commanders, some folks at management schools and supervisor schools, and we've noticed a trend where people who are uh, actively shooting are called active shooters. So uh, I'm going to hit Travis, you with this first. Thanks for being on the show. Talk to us about, let's talk about the NTOA definition of active shooter. Yeah, so one of the things that the uh, NTOA does is they use the terminology active killer. Uh, and their definition essentially is it's an armed suspect who is actively killing or attempting to kill civilians and or law enforcement and con- excuse me, continues to do so while having access to additional victims, which kind of varies from the other active shooter terminology that we've that we've heard throughout the country with the FBI's definition, which is what most of us are familiar with, that puts a number on it. Um, but the bottom line is there's really no algorithm to this. You know, an active shooter can be defined in several different ways depending on who excuse me, depending on who you talk to. We think of the stereotypical active shooter, probably the biggest one uh, in law enforcement history that kind of started this whole deal is Columbine. So one of the main themes I would say, no matter which definition we try to use, is they're trying to kill as many people as possible. So that's a little different than someone who's just actively shooting. You guys all agree? Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah, okay. So we have to be careful when our dispatchers put that stuff out over the radio, or we put it out over the radio, when we when we yell active shooter. So... Uh, Travis uh, has written his thesis for his master's degree on mass casualty incidents. It's in the Cato Library, by the way, plug for Cato. Also, uh, for those of you listening, we are uh, drinking whiskey tonight and a little beer. And uh, for Brent Stratton, the president of Cato, there is no peanut butter in our whiskey tonight. We're drinking big boy whiskey tonight. So, uh, Brent, if you're listening, we wish you were with us today, but you're busy being a deputy chief. So we are going to drink real real whiskey while you're gone. So let's talk a little about Travis. You came up with some themes in your thesis about what's wrong uh, with mass casualty incidents. And really uh, it's not just mass casualty incidents. It's really any big mutual aid incident. Uh, and almost, and quite honestly, in my shop, it's more than two cops, right? Um, we are very good at parking wherever we want because we're the police or the deputies and uh, usually we screw up our own ingress and egress for medical to come in and other mutual responses. This can be a big problem if you don't have the same keys in your car uh, to move cars around and uh, let the Bearcats in or ambulances in. Have you guys experienced that uh, in your own instance? I know each of you have responded to some pretty major incidents in your, in your shops. And uh, would you consider that to be a pretty big issue? Well, first, uh, I'd like to say... Uh... Brent peanut butter whiskey is very good. Um, I drink it. I am not drinking it now, but it is actually my favorite. And back to your question. It's his favorite because he's in junior college. And uh, Marcus has a size 10 shoe, but he's six foot. But we'll go back to the question. <laughs> so the question, pull off the side of the road. Go the furthest to the right or the furthest to the left and put your keys somewhere where someone can have access to them. It's a big problem. We see it over and over again. And uh, it prevents medical aid and armor from responding and medical evacs. And it, it seems to happen uh, time and time again. Yeah, for sure. Um, we, again, we've all been to uh, some major events. And, uh, you know, speaking from personal experience, um, you know, you walk into those or you show up on those. And, and we're all there for the, the right reasons to do the right thing and, and help the right people. Uh, but if we can't get to places, if it's just adding to the chaos, if it's adding to the confusion, and, uh, you know, for those who haven't read the uh, the white paper on the Minkler incident, um, I think that's a real great case study to look at because 
they didn't have the luxury of large roadways and wide open spaces. It was it was a major hindrance. And for some reason, all these years later, we continue to still do this. No, and I think let's talk about solving this problem on the front end. And what that really gets into is the leadership piece. And, you know, what you do pre-event, if you just expect your guys to show up at one of these things and do the right thing, you're really going to have an issue. And, you know, I go back to, you know, and Nick, Nick, you were involved in the, in the Dorner incident, the RC incident. And a lot of these issues that we're seeing can be solved on the front end with some leadership. And in the Dorner incident, when we talk about parking self-deployment issues, if you have a supervisor who is on top of it and who is telling their officers, hey, it's not okay for you to park in the way of these vehicles. It's not okay for you to inappropriately self-deploy. And it has to become part of your culture. It's got to become something that you do all the time. And we talk about parking. And, and one of the things that I've noticed is people that have not experienced the absolute frustration and I mean, you get angry when, when you get to a scene and people need help and you're trying to get there and there's patrol vehicles parked in the way and you can't get there. It's, I, I don't even know how to describe how frustrating that is because that is a supervisor issue and it's as easy as in briefing and we do it all the time out in the field with, I mean, what do we do that on? We do it on fire calls where we've got guys that are parking in the way of fire hydrants and those types of things. And we have, I mean, let's be honest, we've got supervisors that are very young right now that don't have a lot of experience that don't understand these issues and why they're so important. And because they don't come up very much. And we talk about low risk or excuse me, high risk, low frequency events. And when you look at those, these are the common issues that occur. Yeah, I was going to say, Travis, you know, when you start talking about the leadership and the, the supervisors, it always kind of amazes me when you have sergeants that for a briefing training exercise is they'll have have their cops run to their cars and, and don their gear. They're like, they're like active shooter. Hey, that's great and all. That's important. But how about talking about these issues right here? The parking, the self-deployment, the, hey, if we end up getting rolled into some other jurisdiction on mutual aid for an active shooter, hey, we're all going to go together. We're going to get to a rally point. I'm going to liaison with their supervision. We're going to get a task as opposed to you, you have 250 cops doing 250 independent actions. The equipment piece, the readiness piece is good. But again, the front end explaining like, hey, there's more to it than just throwing a vest on and going running towards the sound of gunfire for the ultimate end state. Yeah. And I mean, what we're talking about when we start talking about officers that have been shot, or an active shooter, I mean, we get that emotional piece. And that emotional piece, and we've been talking about it, you know, the last few days is that emotional hijack. And one of the things that that I've used is, you know, hey, it's not okay to inappropriately self-deploy. But the solve to that is, hey, look, do not self-deploy to the scene. But, you know, John, you're my sergeant, take four units and go get half a mile away from the crisis site, be out of the way. But if suddenly they call for more units, you're there, but you're not inserting yourself in the problem, causing that self-induced friction, right? Because friction happens between people and processes. And we self-induce this friction so much with the ego piece and all these different things. And we can give those guys what they want on the emotional side, put them somewhere where they can respond but not so close that they're a problem. And Travis, you mentioned self-deployment. Something I see is people show up, go wherever they want, don't tell anyone, and they're wearing shorts and a white T-shirt. Find the command post, check in, tell them who you are, tell them who you work for and where would you like me. And therefore, they put you on the map, and now you're not seen as a suspect, but everyone knows where you're at. That seems to be a problem that keeps happening. Yeah, and it's a... It's something that we're trying to teach. We're in law enforcement. We're great at the swarm technique, self-deploying, taking that uh, initiative away from the suspect, and then reorganizing ourselves down the road. But when you start getting into these novel events, these things that you might only see once in your career, except for Nick, you've had a few. Uh, the controlled and disciplined response. 
and we have to we have to ingrain that in ourselves. And if you look at the people that have been through this stuff, that's really what they get out of it. In the end, they slow down a little bit, they control, and as you get higher in the ranks, that control gets harder to do because you have more pieces, more more chess pieces on the board. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the other leadership issues that we have. So, and again, these are great lessons to learn, whether you're in a leadership position now or you're going to be. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the biggest one probably is, is how do you wrap your hands around this? And uh, two lessons that I learned uh, not from experience that helped me later on when I did have these big events is designating a staging manager. So as I mutual aid responds in, they have a location and there's somebody there to manage that. And for me, I just write a little SMEAC board out. I pass it to the staging manager and then I tell my scribe if it's just before the full command post is up, we start talking about, hey, the next four people that show up, I want them to go here. And they write down who it is and I can move on to the next problem. So, so as a leadership thing, that just helped me not get overwhelmed by events and uh, or at least helped me from managing that part of not being overwhelmed by events. And uh, that's something that Anderson taught me that I didn't know because he had been to a bunch of these before in his life and I had not. What are some lessons you guys have learned uh, in the leadership realm that can prevent you from getting uh, overwhelmed by events at the beginning of this? Marcus, I'll just tell you, I think two of the things that I see from mistakes that I see novice incident commanders making. One is they go back to what they're comfortable with. And what I mean by that is if I was a traffic guy for the last 15 years and thank God I wasn't, no offense to those that have been, but you are suddenly thrust into a position where you're a sergeant, a field supervisor, you're an incident commander, and now you are faced with one of the biggest problems that you've ever seen in your entire career. And then you are going to focus on those traffic issues because that's what you're comfortable with. Uh, that is one of them. And then the other is the failure to delegate. And you start to try and take too much onto yourself. And then you get the OBE. What you're talking about is overwhelmed by events. You're trying to do everything yourself. And then you get, I mean, we, you know, I've heard stories and walked into command post myself where you're seeing someone who is, I mean, you can see it. They're either completely in condition black or they're at the point where they're, getting mad at you or they're screaming or they just, I've heard, um, had a story told me where one guy just walked out of the command post and walked off and was suddenly not there anymore. So, um, those are, those are some, some serious issues for us at these events. And you have to define that end state and you have to push some of that decision making down because you can't, you can't make every decision. You'll get overwhelmed quickly. Well, and, and real quick to your point, it goes to the difference between command and control and, and and some a lot of people have a problem differentiating between the two you can be in command at the command post but you absolutely not in control at the crisis site and that goes to you as a commander aligning that decision making authority with whoever has situational awareness and that's not very comfortable for people who are at a command post you guys both mentioned something uh, and i'll just throw up how i do things the failure to delegate i operate off of 80 percent rule if something, someone could do something 80% as good as you, then you should delegate because you're not going to, no one's going to do something 100% as good as you. It's what you think. But if you're doing 20 things, you're doing them at 60%. Find the 80%. If someone could do it just as good, then push that off to them. You're not giving them your work. You're just allowing yourself to do something at 100%. So it's an 80% rule I've been taught. And I mean, obviously Travis got his degree based off 70%. So, you know. <laughs> Because he went give to, those on, away. He went to online, online like college. Candy, like candy. Cal <laughs> Coast. He went to Cal Coast. But yeah, 70%. But 80% rule. If you got a guy that can do it 80% is good, delegate it, you know, and then trust and verify. You know, and that, that reminds me of uh, something we talk about in Team Leader and Commander for Cato. And it wasn't anything I learned on my own. It, uh, it was Daryl Evans. And that is uh, wrap your hands around this thing. Get on the right comms channel. If you have to get on three comms channels designate yourself as the leader of this problem tell everybody to stop what they're doing unless they're engaged with the suspect and stand by for a roll call so you can start assessing who showed up and where they need to go so we talked a little bit about leadership issues I'm trying to tell you i want a beer oh hey nick needs a beer 
We found something John's good at. I've been eyeballing you since we started. Thank you. He's thirsty. So, uh, <laughs> speaking of leadership issues, and I don't have the right answer for this, but it'd be a great discussion to have. The main goal of active shooter response is to stop the killing. And statistically speaking, the quicker we can get even one law enforcement agent to intervene with a suspect, it ends. So let's assume that we're doing that. But what do we teach everybody in our shops when the shooting stops? So we show up, there's shots being fired, and then the shooting stops and we don't know where the suspect is. Universally speaking, we teach them to slow down. And it depends on that definition of what slow down means to your team or to your patrol officers, right? Because it's probably not a SWAT response. But there's two roles there, stop the killing and stop the dying. And this is where that leadership piece comes back into play. How do we continue to find this guy, but solve the second part of our problem? Stop the killing and stop the dying. You know, this is something that's causing a lot of confusion. I can say it's throughout the country and with a lot of active shooter incidents that we've had. And to your point, what we've done is we've created this training scar, this algorithm, if you will, where we're telling our guys, hey, if the shooting stops, we're going to barricade posture. And the problem with that is, is we're not evaluating each of these events based on the context of the problem that you're dealing with. And if I can press that on anybody, every situation is different. And so as a result of that, when you have an active shooter where the shooting has stopped and you have, let's say, a shooter inside a crisis site, the shooting has stopped. Well, are there still, and this is the question you need to ask yourself, are there still victims inside that crisis site that are in need of assistance, that are in need of medical help? And if that answer is yes, well, we're not going to barricade posture. We need to find an this brings up another point is don't go through the main primary entry point when you do that intervention. Find a way to get in there so that you can intervene and help that stop the dying phase because we've created this training scar. And this, and this issue, I will tell you right now, is causing problems all over this country and even outside this country because we have created this... The, I don't know how else better to describe it other than this training scar where, oh, hey, the shooting stopped. We stop. Forget it. We're not going inside. And you as a supervisor have to know when to intervene and when to hold. And, and that's, that brings up a good point as a supervisor, uh, when to hold and when to go. But uh, the harder part I see and me and Travis have seen, you're a supervisor. You're not, you're not number one in the stick. You're not going to, if you're the commander, your job's a commander. If you've been recently promoted, congratulations, you know, but you can't go in number one anymore. Yeah. You want to tell people, and if, even if your own guy shot, you're a commander, be a commander. Don't go in number one. I know it's hard. We've seen it over and over, but may, take on your new job. What is your new role? And I'm not perfect at it and I've made the mistakes, but take on your, your new job and your new title is more important then you going in number one in the stick and trying to encounter the guy. Because if you get shot, who's going to take on your role? So you have to really consider what your job is and what your priorities are in the bigger picture. What can you do for the guys? Yeah, and define that role ahead of time, right? This is all stuff that we should have conversations with our subordinates and with our superiors to uh, make sure we kind of hash that out each other's expectations because it requires some discipline and uh, we can't. We can't just uh, run on emotion. Just one more point is that this, and, and Nick brings up something that we, we get into the emotional side of things. And, you know, several of us in this room have lost brothers and sisters. Um, and that is an emotionally charged event that, frankly, none of us are prepared for. None of us. And, when it actually happens and you're out at the crisis site and you're having to make decisions, that is also causing us issues because we have these complex topics because we talk about priority of life or what NTOA now calls safety priorities, however you want to characterize it. And we all know what those are. You've got hostages, citizens, officers, suspects. And we say these things and we go to these classes and we preach, preach, preach. 
and we practice them at the easy calls. But one of the things that I talk about is, you know, I give a decision-making exercise where I say, hey, you have an officer who attempts to enter an active shooter crisis site. They're ambushed. They go down. You have, and you are arriving. And you know you have people down inside. And you have the requisite resources to either rescue that officer or get inside and stop the dying. You can't do both at the same time. What's the textbook answer to that? Priority of life, the safety priorities state, we go inside first before we rescue. That's the textbook answer. But what in reality are we going to do? Rescue our officer. We're going to rescue our officer. And that is something that I think we really miss is that emotional piece that, 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 that causes us so many issues. And it drives our decision-making when we get into that emotional side of things, especially when one of our brothers or sisters are down. Yeah. I'll, I'll just throw in, I look at these, those, those scenarios, those problems, those are like those uncomfortable conversations you either have with your parents as they get older, or you have with your children as you get older, like, Hey, this is awkward. This is uncomfortable, but let's talk about this now before we're in the moment, we're in the event, and now we've got to figure it out on the fly, and we're dealing with that emotional side of it. It's like, hey, this is going to be uncomfortable and briefing for the next 20 minutes, but if we're going to the active shooter at the breach point, first officer on scene goes down, priority of life, safety precautions or whatever, say we're going to do this, what are we really going to do? Let's all get on the same page and talk that out right now. That way there's less tension after the fact. There's less problems in that emotional um, clinical debrief or however things go so that we don't have anger issues towards each other or we don't have, you know, ill will. I mean, no one wants to have that conversation, right. but we need to ahead of time. Whew. That was deep, John. Incorrect. I try. For a guy's nicknamed Angry John. That was very touchy feely. Uh, just so you know, uh, we are drinking real whiskey, Brent, and uh, we are uh, hydrating with Coors Light. We're not sponsored by Coors Light, but if you'd like to sponsor us, please uh, reach out because we would take your money. <laughs> but for the record, I'm not drinking, so just to John is not clear. drinking. John is born. <laughs> Hence, he is the uh, designated beer deliverer. So that brings up a great topic, kind of transitioning from that. Uh, leadership issues to stop the killing, stop the dying to rescue task force. So uh, this is a great question. I'll pull the room. Is rescue task force a strategy or a tactic? Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. It's a, it's a tactic. And this is something I, that I've really hit hard over the last few years, because what I've found is that fire, fire is very good at putting out fires. They're, they're, they're good with the knowns. They're good with the natural and the mechanical crises. But when you insert a adversary into the problem, they don't know how to deal with that. And that's not what they're used to. And so as a result, we find that, you know, when we start talking about rescue task force, they want that checklist. If you go to a crisis site, and you and and having looked at these things from all over the country, what's actually going to happen is that, and I'll back up a little bit, your tactics are context dependent. What works in one set of circumstances is absolutely not going to work in another. Our strategy, once we've stopped that suspect from killing, is to stop the dying. And what I've seen all over the country is a lot of people are only practicing rescue task force as if that is their strategy. And that's a problem because what's actually going to happen is that they are going to use any means that they can to get people to the hospital. So one of the things uh, that I've seen in my career is when we have these these large scale training scenarios, um, we do things administratively to the point where we have to include people for the sake of including them. So what I've seen is we'll have a big large scale active shooter event. And when we get to the rescue task force part, we don't integrate the fact that the active shooter problem is still part of it. We almost do it like, oh, the shooting's been stopped. Now let's get into the rescue task force part. And we work that problem. We don't work them in conjunction or simultaneously, because I think if we did that more and and added some more realism to it, um, 
we we'd probably get a lot a lot more for our buck that way as opposed to okay the 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 shooting is stopped now bring in rescue task force and it's like well that's not how it's going to be in real life it's not going to be that simple no and i mean how long does it take to get okay you four firemen and you two cops get all your stuff and you talk to your tac medics which we all have and what do they say it's all about time you put a tourniquet on a chest seal combat gods all you are doing is buying them time before they get to the hospital so do we have the time because you know lots i've been talking to a lot of people about maneuvering in time lately with all of our de-escalation and all this stuff going on we don't have the time to have to let that happen hey why don't you get in there get these people some help however you can so you mentioned the realistic of the training and i'll just touch on what i've observed during the active shooter training that we've recreated, um, you get your outside agencies, you get your your fire, medical, your outside agencies, you bring them all together, do your safety checks, and you start tapping on individual agencies that don't know each other in pairs of threes. And you send them in, wait three minutes, five minutes, let them coordinate where they're at, at a school. You touch another three that don't know each other because that's how they're going to arrive. People do training. You don't, you're not going to show up together. Let them say what building they're in. Let them say which area they cleared. And what we've learned too is we'll have a guy in the D wing, which is D one through five. They'll shoot off blanks. Everyone always trains, always in D three. Guess what? You're not going to know if he's in D three. You're going to know an area. So then you have to clear every building, make it realistic, do shots fired with blanks, make him go to an area. It's not going to lead you to a classroom. That That's too easy. Make it hard for him. Make him clear a whole building in every classroom they think the shooter's actually in. And by us tapping the one, two, three of people that don't know each other, that's realistic. And then they know, hey, what's been cleared, what hasn't been cleared. They don't know each other. They don't work with each other. Just make it harder for them. And that's not to say rescue task forces don't work. So we're not saying that at all. We're just saying that you can't rely on that as your only solution to jam into your problem. And there's a bunch of other ways you can do safety corridors. You can do a bunch of other things. The, The main takeaway we want you to get from here is don't wait. If you don't know where the shooter is, you're going to have your hunting teams and you're going to have your rescue task forces or your safety corridor teams or some plan. And if you don't have one, what will happen is your troops will come up with some way to push these people out of the hot zone and get them to the uh, warm zone or cold zone. And not to insult our fire brothers and sisters, but the hot zone and warm zone is an imaginary line to make you feel safe. Bullets don't care about the hot or warm zone or even cold zone. And I will most likely in my rescue task force avenge your death. I will most likely not be able to prevent bullets from coming towards me, depending upon the the context of the event. Everybody agree? Absolutely. I remember talking to one of my friends. He's a TAC medic. Great dude. Super solid guy. Have a lot of respect for him as a fireman. And that's saying something. And, uh, he, uh, we're doing a drill, multi-agency active shooter drill, and the firemen are like, hey, you need to go meet my guys so you can escort them into the hot zone for the rescue task forces or the safety corridor. And I said, hey, there's nothing magical about me standing with your guys or me providing overwatch. Either way, I will just avenge your death because nothing I have with me today will protect us all from getting shot. And he kind of looked at me and he realized it was a training scar for him as a fireman. He's like, yeah, we never thought about that. We're so worried about designating the hot and warm zone and where you, where we can go, like the safety corridor where you're putting people in for us to evac. I never really thought about the fact that it really doesn't matter. I'm like, no, it's just, it's just to make you feel safe. That's all it really is. Uh, uh, you said fire and you turned me off. So I'm going to bring you back to uh, our job. So, Something I've noticed. <laughs> well done. A lot of stuff you say is not that funny. That was a good one. <laughs> so, but something I'm noticing is um, it takes a critical incident to happen for departments to realize they have a common channel. Um, hey, you hear a critical incident. And they're like, I wish we had a common channel. Well, we talk to fire. We talk to dispatch. We do have a common channel. And it's this. So ask around. Guess what? Do we have a common channel? Ask everyone. You might have a common channel already designated, but you didn't know until after your critical incident. So if you could determine that channel prior to, I mean, could that save lives? Could that save self-deployment? Could that save, you know, anything? 
Does the dumbest guy in your department working graveyards on a Sunday night know what that channel is? No, absolutely not. No. So, yeah. It takes a critical incident for them to say, we had that channel. How come we didn't know? Well, guess what? Let's ask before. So let's transition a little bit from rescue task forces and safety corridors and that kind of deal, which is a leadership issue and a pre-event training issue. Let's talk a little bit about situation reports and situational awareness. So I did not learn this uh, from my shop, and it really took Cato and Field Command to teach me the importance of consistent and thorough situational reports from the command post. Now, my shop is probably not different from anybody who's listening shop in that nobody says, please, please pick me and put me in the CP. Usually you're an operator and as you promote through, uh, you're the, for me, I was the junior sergeant. And so the junior sergeant got stuck in the CP while the senior sergeants went out with the team. And I didn't like that, but I decided to try to get good at it and figure it out. And that's what led me to Cato and uh, to learn that I needed to do better situation reports. And as a side note, this is just me. You guys chime in if it's just me and uh, my shop. But situational reports are great, but you got to know what to say and what the content should be, and it should be consistent. And you have to have every single unit acknowledge that situational report. Because if they don't acknowledge it, then you don't know that they know it. And they could be acting on old information. And exactly what you're saying, uh, lessons learned. We've had critical incidents where your scout team ends up being your uh, your hostage rescue team or your media react team. They don't make the briefing. So how do you notify them of all the details needed to know prior to? So your long rifle team, sniper team, whatever you call it, they go out first or second. They don't, they're not at the briefing. Over time, we learned during our briefing, we create a a Zoom meeting or a uh, a speakerphone, and we brief the snipers with their spotters of the briefing as they're watching the target, and they hear all the details, criminal history, guns, what they're wanted for, their violent history, um, the statements they've made. But as a sniper, you maybe would have never got that. But now that you're here on the speakerphone during this briefing, you hear all these things you didn't know, which could play a big role into what you do later on. And it took... Uh, it took some lessons learned to do that. That didn't happen overnight. When debriefs, hey, I never knew that. I never heard that. I didn't know he's wanted for that. I didn't know he gave a countdown. He's going to kill a person every one minute. Well, why not? Is it on the commander? So you evolve and you learn. And it's incumbent upon leaders at the team leader, assistant team leader, sergeant, tactical commander, incident commander to to set our people who have to make these critical decisions, these life or death situations to have the right information to make the right decision. Because most places, once you have an OIS, you're gonna be isolated. You have to make a statement about why you took that shot and took somebody's life that you needed to. And it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we give them the best information possible. And if a whole unit doesn't acknowledge your sit rep, then you get a problem. And you gotta figure out what that is. Are they not listening or you have a calm problem? Are they engaged? What, what could be happening out there? And if they make the wrong decision, it could send your entire operation into a different direction. So let's talk a little bit about the difference between uh, situational awareness and common operational picture. So we talk about situational awareness. Let's all agree. Do we all agree? The person that has the best situational awareness is boots on the ground who's closest to whatever the conflict is. And we've learned this since, since conflict began. World War I, World War II, Vietnam's a great example. We learned these lessons in Afghanistan. The same problems we had in Vietnam, we had in Afghanistan and we had in Iraq. You have to trust the man on the ground in the situational awareness that they have. Now they have to communicate that to the command post who's supposed to see the bigger picture and move all the bigger chess pieces. But it's incumbent upon us to rely on that situational awareness and our and our leadership can't make good decisions if they don't get those reports and understand the situation so situational awareness is something that belongs to an individual and there i won't get too heady on this but there's actually three levels of situational awareness but when we talk about common operational picture 
Like I said, SA belongs to an individual. Common operational picture belongs to the group. It's what we all know about this situation. And painting that common operational picture is what you just talked about is through situational updates. I'm getting everybody on the same sheet of music so we know what we're doing here, why we're here, and what direction we are actually going. And I've seen it. A lot of teams will not put out situational updates and they're done to paint that picture because Marcus, if you get to a hostage problem 15 minutes after I do, and you don't have all the information, it causes us issues where suddenly you've got, Hey, I didn't know we had this many hostages. I thought we only had this many hostages. Um, commanders have to do that. And that's usually their responsibility every 30 minutes or as new information becomes available. And you're absolutely right. It's something that has to be practiced. And I used to write them all down, right, 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 right. Suspect info, et cetera, et cetera, until you get good at them. I've had situations where you get there and everybody's like, God, I didn't even know this was going on. I'm really glad you put out that, that situational update. So I can't tell you how absolutely imperative it is that your team members know exactly what is going on because you are building the case for them for what they are going to have to do if a suspect presents himself or if a hostage comes out. What is their course of action? Because they're going to be articulating that if they get into an OIS based on the information that you put out. And even even dial it down. Let's step aside from active shooter. Let's just talk about a, a standard patrol call. Everybody has to have the same information. And so often, because we're so good at self-deploying, we're so good at establishing the perimeter, containment, long rifle, react. And in this whole chaos that we control, and, and law enforcement's very good at it compared to a lot of other organizations, we forget that not everybody has the same information. We got to stop everybody and tell them what we're really about and what's really going on. And we, and as leadership, we're setting our our deputies and our officers up for failure if we don't give them the information they need to make the critical decisions should they should they deal with a suspect yeah you mentioned it earlier touched on it marcus but it, it goes both ways um quick war story uh working a barricade um in our in our my city and it got to the point where hey we're going to shut down power we're moving some personnel around we want to darken the the environment up so the guy can't see us we did that um ended up resolving it get the guy in custody uh we're in the debrief and one of the guys who was on um the number one side was like Hey, the front of this house was all giant windows that were open curtains, sliders. When you shut the power off, we couldn't see anything inside anymore. And I'm like, well, if you would have told me to leave the power on because of that, I would have. He goes, oh, yeah, I didn't mention that, did I? No. So you want me to make decisions at the CP, they're going to benefit you. But if I don't have the same picture you do, how can I do that? And it, it was just a real quick, yeah, got it back and forth. But you're right. It is. It's a two-way street. We yeah. need the information to make those decisions. And that's absolutely a good point. And that brings up another issue, which is many people confuse the difference between command and control. I can be in command at the, at the command post, but Nick up at the crisis entry team is absolutely in control of what's going on. And that brings up another point, which is you have to align the decision-making authority with the situational awareness, you have to, and that comes back to a, a whole other issue, which is trust. If I'm if I'm Nick SWAT commander, and him and I have been operating together for years on end, we're going to have trust. We've had conversations about this is when I'll intervene, this is when I won't if the suspect comes out. But if you have a SWAT commander who has not trained with the team a lot, you could you could run into a lot of issues. So. Um, and I know we've all experienced this stuff before. It's just it's it's a it's a really good point to understand the difference between command and control, situational awareness, and common operational picture, and be able to diagnose those problems when they're going on at your at your at your whatever crisis you're dealing with. And Travis, just from a, a team leader perspective, and obviously uh, other people here or lieutenants or commanders or play that role, you don't see what I see, and I think there's a big, huge disconnect of failure to communicate. I'm there. I see the house. I see the suspect. You don't see it. You're out of command post. So unless I properly communicate with you 
of what I see, you're going to get frustrated because you don't know what I'm looking at. And I think that's huge because if the communication isn't proper and I don't give you my exact location and you don't have a downlink or you don't have a drone or you don't have a helicopter, how are you able to understand where I'm at in position? So I think the communication process, we're not going to go OBE, but I have to let you know which corner, which side I'm on so you could paint that picture in your head or else it's going to affect your operation, your decision making. Yep. Now, real quick, and, and that brings up a great point. It's something that Sid taught me a long time ago is commander's reconnaissance. If I'm at the, if I'm at the command post, I, I, it's okay for me to go look at the crisis site because I want to drink that in. I want to look at it. I want to see everything. But then I'm done. I don't need to sit there and try and manage this whole problem up with Nick. I need to get my rear end back to the command post and start working this problem from my perspective. So that's a great point. I, I see it over and over again. Like I go back and we talk about it and the commander's like, I had no idea what you guys saw, what it looked like. So if you're not taking photos and you're not sending information or sending aerial photos or you're not communicating and I don't like to be micromanaged, but over time I like to call the commander and say, Hey, this is where I'm at. What do you want done next? Yeah. And that helps them out because they've given me the directive rather than me take initiative and do something they don't ask for. And it'd be confusion. If they ask me to do something, well, then I don't have to tell them what I'm doing because they asked for it so they know what I'm doing. And that's the sweet spot, right? So as you come up through the ranks, you're, uh, let's say you're an entry guy, right? So let's talk about SWAT for a minute, even though we're talking active shooter. You're the entry guy, you're the patrol guy, whatever it may be. You're like, I have the best information. These guys don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> then you grow up just a tiny bit and you become a sniper, like the parents of the SWAT team. And you see a little bit bigger picture. Nick's very angry right now so while hold I'm talking, on. by the way. See? <laughs> so, here we go. So, uh, here we hold go. on. Hold on. You said two cores lights. Two cores lights. Nick's going to fight and me. And a couple of peanut butters. So you said snipers, the parents of the SWAT team. A sniper is a field goal kicker. You get one shot to kick the ball. You don't have to be in shape. You don't have to be that smart. You don't have to be big. You just need to <laughs> kick. You need to kick the ball and make a goal. That's all. <laughs> you could be a, a short, skinny, non-athletic guy that pulls the trigger. So... A sniper is actually a field goal kicker on a professional football team. No offense to your snipers. I'm not touching that one. He just really derailed the whole conversation. <laughs> I like it. I I'm just gonna sit. I'm just gonna sit over here and not say. I mean, how de <laughs> how deadly is it for you to sit up several hundred yards away on a gun versus the entry team? So if you're a sniper, cool. Thank you for your service. But you know, uh, you're by yourself, and no one's gonna <laughs> shoot you. His name is Nick. He'll be at the Cato Conference next year. <laughs> and any of you that are snipers, yeah. you can uh, come up and uh, I'll buy be the him one a, kicking in the door while you're buy him uh, a Coors Light <laughs> because he's had two and he's tough talking already. As you as you start, uh, anyhow, back to my point. Now Nick wants to fight me. Um, my money's on Nick, by the way. You, <laughs> yeah, big hands, as, little feet, but you know whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, as you start having to have a bigger view, a balcony view, you start realizing there's a lot more chess pieces, a lot more information that you need to know. And, and so my ultimate point of that was you, you have to rely on the people in the field to give you that situational awareness. But at the same time, and Nikki, you've mentioned this actually with your tiny little hands, but he's mentioned this earlier that you also rely on the bigger picture because you don't have that, right? You have the best, like, a great example is who saw the last, who saw the suspect last foot pursuit, barricade, car chase. It doesn't really matter what it is. Who is on the ground has the best information, right? But as you start controlling resources, that's not that person, right? That's that, that's what we talked about earlier. The situational awareness and the common operational picture. They're two different things and it's incumbent upon the people running the command post, whether you're a sergeant or a corporal in the hood of a patrol car, or you're in a command post, where you're going full-blown unified command, fire response in ICS, it's the same problem, right? you got to give those situational reports. And it's very easy in law enforcement. We spend so much time on required training and procedures that we forget about the principles. And the principles in decision-making comes back to context. You have to understand the context. There's not one answer that fits every situation. No, and I would agree with that. I mean, everybody, I don't want to get too much into this, Marcus, but we talk about everybody wants a checklist. Everybody wants to talk about 
you know, okay, I've marked every box. And the problem with that is it really robs us of that independent decision making that we see out there. I mean, we can all think of an incident where you kind of start scratching your head going, well, this doesn't really fit the the checkbox that I've, I've been to before. And so it goes to, and, and one of the things I talk about is it is our absolute as leaders in law enforcement and whatever type of leader you are out there, whether you're a SWAT team leader, a SWAT team commander, or you're an informal leader, because many of us are informal leaders in patrol and SWAT or wherever you are, is that it is your job to create complex problem solvers. And it is always, when we analyze tactical operations, it is always our decisions that stick out, that are most conspicuous. And, you know, when we, I could go through, you know, Orlando or pick one, Pittsburgh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those things either went right or went wrong based on a decision that someone made, the how versus the why. Yeah, it's great that you can shoot straight, but what about the decision to even shoot in the first place? And I think that is a some of the things that, that we really miss. Yeah, and going into that, the uh, stealing another quote from Daryl Evans, it's the, the suspect gets to grade your paper. Right. So it's great to talk about all the, the tactics and all that, but it's the strategy. You have to be good at the tactics. You have to be able to shoot. You have to be able to maneuver. You have to be able to get to where you need to go. But in the end, the suspect gets a vote, right? Everybody in your area of operation actually gets a vote on whether your plan is good and, and not to forget that. No, it's just, uh, I was having this conversation with, uh, one of my, my peers, uh, the other day is that, you know, if, if you end up in civil court, you end up in a lawsuit. Um, like no one ever gets sued over their bench press. Like we don't get sued because of our mile time. Um, it's the decisions leading up to that. It's it's what did we do to make that decision? Because y- you can get anyone to to lift heavy weights and, and shoot guns, but in those situations, making that decision at the right time. Marcus doesn't lift weights. No, definitely not with those hands. Um, They're so big. Okay. Um, but definitely teaching people, and I'm just not talking about SWAT cops. I'm talking about everyone in, in this line of work is making better decision makers. It's like, personally, I don't care how fast you run, how high you jump and how straight you shoot. What is your decision making capability? That is what gets us in trouble every time. And you know what? To your, to your point, and I know we're all seeing this on our teams, is that we are more experienced guys because of all those gaps. I mean, we've got a lot of zero to three year cops in patrol. Then we've got nobody. Then we've got 10 years and up. A lot of those 10-year cops are, are lazy. They're not really good at what they do. And what happens as a result is that we now are being forced to put younger guys on our teams. And they don't have the requisite experience to even be on SWAT. But what choice do we have? And so one of the things that, that you can do is get them with better decision-making. And if they don't have that decision-making ability, you're, we're running into all sorts of issues. And, and Travis, I'll go, I'll talk a little about what I've learned from you about the whole Rolodex. Yeah. Um, the, the, the mind can't go where the body hasn't been. So if you, if I can't bring you to these critical incidents, then what can I do? I can give you scenario based incidents and teach you, and I can show you past incidents and, and not even that, but they, they keep repeating themselves over the last 20, 30 years, it's the same problems, the same incidents, we keep encountering, whether it be riots, active shooters, anything. You want to go to Columbine, you want to go to uh, the the Las Vegas shooting from the tower. Well, guess what? That's a repeat of another one. So if, if these young guys can't get this experience, then let's just teach them. Let's do debriefs with them. Let's show them the incidents. Let's show them the PowerPoints. They might not be able to learn it, and they're young because that's who's out there. But let's give them the information, build that Rolodex. And try to educate them, make their, everyone thinks a SWAT guy is a guy that's in great shape and is a great shot. Could be, but do they have the experience? And how do we teach them it? We have to share our experiences with them. Yeah, you're creating that, to your point, you're creating that artificial experience, which a lot of guys are like, yeah, that's a bunch of nonsense. It's actually not. You, you, you do that stuff. You talk about these things. And if they really absorb it, 
And if they really understand how beneficial it is for them to learn from that, they'll, they will do so much better. And I've got several examples I could give of officers involved in shootings or, you know, I do decision-making exercises for classes I teach. And I've had guys call me from other departments, you know, across the country be like, man, that DME you did with us, it made all the difference for us. So it's, it's proven and we all know it. So off topic a little bit, I don't know if you, I haven't talked to you since you got the offer. I don't know if you went to Brazil and you said you weren't, I don't know if you're going to invite me. So you're going to invite your wife, <laughs> but Travis got, he's trying to leverage. Twitter. He's trying no, to, I'm leverage. Still trying to <laughs> I, I could go to Brazil. I could be helped, but Travis got offered to go to Brazil to help their guys out in their SWAT team with some stuff they heard. And I asked him to invite me. And then he said he needs to ask his wife first. We haven't talked since, but like, I'm still like, I Brazil's off the chain right now. Yeah, we got so a lot of crazy shit going you on. You know, if you're cool, like I'll still go. <laughs> oh man, he does, he does it on on the record. Like, just throws it out no, there. Yeah, I mean, have, way to put me right out you know on what, Front man, Street. He's, because he's, <laughs> Nick, you know how much I love being on Front Street. <laughs> but I'll I'll go. I mean, I'm still here. I'm like, I'll play. Back to Travis's decision-making exercises. That's something I learned from Travis when we when we first met several years ago through SLP at, in Cato, was he would give us these decision-making scenarios. And then, you know, for those of you that haven't worked with Travis or, or gotten to go to one of his classes, he is probably one of the most giving guys with material. So I started texting, calling, emailing Travis right away. Like, hey, can you send me this? And it was always yes, yes, yes. And once I started learning like some of the, the, the concepts and the ideas behind it, I started building my own DMEs based on my city because I'm on a collateral SWAT team. My full-time job is a patrol sergeant on day shift. So I started going around my city, looking at sites, looking at places, building my own decision-making scenarios and doing those in briefing. Is policy great? Yes. Is all the other stuff great? Yes. But we got to make decisions. So that's a great deal. Like that's not SWAT, right? That's anybody. Patrol, detectives, we have to do better at helping build a Rolodex. And that's easy, right? There are no new problems, quote Daryl Evans, only new people trying to solve these problems. So recently, we're in a class and we're talking about there are no new problems. And if you go, you can actually go all the way back to Napoleon and find similar tactical problems that we're dealing with today. Now, the technology is different. The people are different, but the crimes are the same. So one of the, the books that I would recommend uh, everybody looking at is Significant Tactical Police Cases, Learning from Past Events to Improvise, Improve Upon Future Responses uh, by Ron McCarthy, one of the founders of modern day SWAT. And he discusses several significant tactical events that quite honestly dictated the tactics that we use today. And if you look at some of these events, we're still dealing with them today. There are different versions, different locations, but the problems are the same. And if you take away the emotion, you take away the names, you take away the story, and you look at this tactical event, it's the same. And how we look at time and terrain and how we examine these problems will really dictate how successful we are. Agreed? Yep. No, absolutely. So before we go, because we're running out of time here, uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit. We, we've really discussed a lot of things today, but uh, we're in California. You know, we're in uh, December of 2020 right now, and uh, we're seeing litigation, uh, criminal prosecution of police officers for uses of force right now. And we're not sure how that litigation is going to go and what this means. But we wanted to talk quickly about reasonable force and reasonable and necessary force. And as leaders uh, in our departments, how do we talk about that? So for over 20 years, I've been a police officer and everything was defined as reasonable force. And what would a officer with similar training and experience having the information that I had at the time that I responded to this event, whatever it might be, what would they do? And that's how it's measured. And now we're looking at necessary a little bit. So let's discuss that quickly. Again, we're talking a little bit about AB 392, use of force, 
Um, and really, there's not a huge change there, but there's a big change in the examination of pre-event tactics. And that really goes all the way back to, correct me if I'm wrong, Travis, it's Chelsea versus San Diego. I think so. Um, was the first time. And then we're looking at uh, Eureka SWAT. Um, is another landmark case where the chief and the tactical commander um, were prosecuted and it ended up working itself out. But these are all pre-event behavior. And we have to teach our people, no matter what rank they're at, that their pre-event behavior can be measured. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to your point, we, the way, and, and I'll just go into, you know, this is more of a patrol issue. But the way that we respond when we're managing dynamic tactical problems, if we respond in an uncoordinated manner, unprofessionally, where you've got, and, and one of my pet peeves is people running their sucks on the radio and talking way too much and being undisciplined and all those things. If you are responding to these incidents in this manner, and then that incident goes bad, every action that you took from the time that radio call went off to the time that call is over with are now subject to evaluation. And you're gonna run into problems if you have not spent any time training your officers in what we've been talking about with decision-making or training them in whatever it is. And if you're a supervisor, you have to be paying attention to use of force reports. If you're on SWAT, what are the issues that we had on our last mission? What does our after action report say from our last mission? How are we plugging those lessons learned into our training. And one of the things I've run into, and I'm sure you guys have seen this, is teams that say, well, you know, we don't do after action reports because we don't want to give a plaintiff's attorney the stick to beat us with. Well, you know what? I'm sorry, but that is a poor excuse. You absolutely have to answer this question. Well, let me ask you, SWAT operator so-and-so, you don't make any mistakes? So, I mean, you document mistakes that people make all the time, but you don't make any mistakes? Well, the better answer to that is, yes, we are humans. And until you replace us with robots, we are going to continue to make mistakes. Here's how, or rather, here is the process that we go through to document those mistakes. And then subsequently from that documentation, we plug those into training so that we have a process for not making the same mistakes again. Um, so we're going we're gonna to continue to be held for these things, the de-escalation piece and all that. De-escalation requires cooperation from your suspect. That's absolutely something that I picked up from Missy Olin. But the way you respond to a call can actually de-escalate it. And you know, I've been guilty of, of taking business away from our own SWAT team because we responded in a coordinated manner. It didn't let that problem get so out of control that it required a SWAT response. You know, it's like, again, going back to Daryl, what Daryl taught us was, hey, a forest fire starts with a spark. If you can put out the spark, it's not going to grow into a forest fire. And we can do that with a coordinated response. And, and I'll just go off a quote. Uh, Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. A lot of these new guys are uh, thinking, if you don't correct someone and you don't step outside of groupthink and you don't uh, correct someone on their behavior, and it doesn't go to lawsuit and it doesn't, they don't get found guilty, they, they accept it as their norm. So there comes a point where you have to step outside, take that chance, step forward and tell them, hey, that was incorrect. We don't do things like that. And if you don't do that, they're going to make that their norm and they're going to continue to do that. And that goes uh, from shots fired to tactics to anything. But if they think they get away with it once, they're going to make that their norm, which could be very problematic later on. It's absolutely natural for the human mind to try to come up with one answer that's easy to solve these problems. But in reality, this is a thinking person sport and we have to constantly be thinking about what we're doing, how we're doing it. Are we placing our adversary at a position of disadvantage? Are we placing our people at a position of advantage before we go into this conflict? And by conflict, I mean, as law enforcement, we've been asked to enforce society's rules. And this person has gone against those rules. Otherwise, we wouldn't be involved in their life. And how are we going to best place them at, at a position of disadvantage to hopefully gain their compliance, right? I mean, that's the goal. 
Everything that we do is really de-escalation. We're manipulating time and terrain to place our adversary at a disadvantage. Even during an active shooter, it's the same thing. It's all context dependent. It's based upon the terrain. It's based upon how we put our chess pieces on the board and hopefully gain compliance. Now, statistically speaking, and Travis, you'll know this number off the top of your head. I don't. But as soon as we intervene with that, the killing will stop. So I want to thank you all for being here. We're uh, almost out of whiskey. Uh, we've been getting texts by Brent Stratton the entire time complaining that he's not here with us. So Brent is the president of Cato and uh, also normally my co-host. I've gone rogue against him because I don't care for peanut butter whiskey. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, if somebody who manufactures peanut butter whiskey wants to sponsor the podcast, I'll drink peanut butter whiskey every day. I'm just not in junior college anymore. Anybody else? We still love you, though, Brent. So don't we do mind love what Marcus you, is saying. We do love you, Brent, with your khakis and your smart loafers. I'm actually looking into manufacturing peanut butter whiskey. To be, I'm 100% honest with you. So you're going to drink something. Nick is an entrepreneur. And if he sends me free peanut butter whiskey, I will absolutely drink it. And if he wants to take his side business hustle to sponsor the Cato podcast, will you drink it? I'll drink it and talk about it every day. Done. Because I believe in Cato. And peanut butter whiskey. Not yet. <laughs> you will. Anyhow, thanks for being here today, fellas. I, I appreciate the time. We hope you gathered some value out of this uh, podcast. As always, uh, shoot us an email for feedback, especially if it's positive. If you like what we talked about today and you found some value in it, please share this with a friend or rate us on the platform of your choice. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.